Hello everyone, good morning and welcome. It's really wonderful to be with you today. It's been a bit of a chilly week, at least I've certainly been quite cold. I hope that you've managed to keep warm and I'm excited that we can be together again online today. Last week, John spoke about healing our nation and he shared with us his belief that for true healing in our nation to be accomplished, that can only come through the application of the gospel. Because only the gospel really provides the tools that we need in order to be healed. And therefore, we as a church should be models and examples of the reconciliation that our nation can experience. If that nation is touched and affected by the gospel, if people are saved and become followers of Jesus. So what is the gospel able to do that our society seems so unable to do? There, there are many possible ways to answer that question, but, I, but today I want to focus on, on one of those. And it's this. I believe the gospel brings about healing in the lives of individuals. Today we're going to talk about the healing that we can find in Jesus. The healing that he offers to us as people, as individuals. And, and I want to start with a little introduction from a, a popular sitcom called How I Met Your Mother. And in this TV show, the lead protagonist, his name is Ted, and he's busy explaining to his children how he met their mother. And he makes this interesting observation. He says, kids, when you're in your 30s, dating is great. But by the time you reach your 30s, sorry, when you're in your 20s, dating is great. But by the time you reach your 30s, you find out pretty fast that everyone has baggage. By the time you reach your 30s, everyone has baggage. It's an interesting statement. And by way of introduction, we're going to watch a one-minute summary of that little episode where we see Ted wrestle with this revelation that he's come to. And, and then we're going to ask the question, which is an important one, how on earth does what we've just watched relate to the gospel, which is the reason they're actually all with us today and watching this YouTube clip. So um, we're going to play the How I Met Your Mother clip now, and I'll be back right afterwards. Kids, when you're in your 20s, dating is great. But by the time you reach your 30s, you find out pretty fast everyone has baggage. Sure, you can stick to the small talk and pretend it's not there. But sooner or later... It's my ex. Sorry, we're trying to remain friends. Hi, Pumpkin. Did you get our tickets to Maui? Yeah, it's there. Hey, how come you said oh no when the movie started? That's when I realized everyone has baggage, including me. Oh, uh, no reason. Hey, um, that stuff that happened to me, it was pretty rough. I'm, uh, I'm still getting over it. Let me help you with that. And just like that, kids, my baggage didn't seem quite so heavy anymore. You see, everyone's got some baggage. It's part of life. But like anything else, it's easier when someone gives you a hand with it. Here's the key observation that we see Ted make in this episode. As all of us go through life, the journey will leave its marks on us. And often, the scars of our past experience will live on unresolved in our present. That's what Ted discovers. That's, that's the pain, the baggage that he refers to. And to make matters worse, 
not only do we need to navigate through our own experiences, because I think this is a good observation that Ted makes. Right, this is the reality that we live in. And not only do we need to navigate through that, but we need to do that under the pressure of a world that makes judgments about us based on those experiences. Right? Our world judges us based on what we've been through and how we've reacted. And this is, and, and to some degree, has always been a part of human society. There's been this grid of culturally accepted values against which each of us is measured and our value is quantified. Right? And, and these grids, they're intangible and they're elusive. They exist only in the unspoken expectations of people and of society. And they change all the time from year to year, from context to context. But they evaluate the choices that we make and the roads that we take. And the thing is that these judgments often become a part of our accepted identity. They become a judgment about who we are and consequently how valuable we are. They make judgments like this, whether or not you are married, single or divorced. What race you might be a part of. What sex you are, whether you're male or female. How mature you are as a person. Whether you're someone that the world considers to be attractive or not. Perhaps you've heard someone call you ugly. Whether you're someone who's outgoing and personable that gets on well with other people. Or you're shy and you like to stay at the back of groups and conversations. Whether you're a fun person who's enjoyable to be around. Or people find your company boring. Whether you're a person who is spiritual or religious, or whether you're a person that disregards those things. Whether you have some kind of fashion sense, or whether you just dress for comfort. Whether you have some level of education, perhaps tertiary education, or whether society might consider you uneducated, stupid perhaps. Whether you are healthy and fit physically or whether you are hindered in some way, you've got some kind of disability that prevents you from engaging in the world the way that most people do. Whether you're a healthy person and and not healthy, a wealthy person, whether you have money where you live or whether you're a person of little means and maybe you're poor. Whether you're a person of influence and are able to sway the minds and the decisions of people in society at large. Or whether you are largely invisible to the people around you. Whether you're a person who is productive and is able to contribute well to the workings of an organization. Or whether you have a lower output than some people. Whether you're a person who has experienced levels of privilege in their life and enjoy certain things or whether you're a person that hasn't had those privileges and exists in an underprivileged state. Whether, according to our world, you have made a success of your life or you have failed it and have fallen short of its expectations. Friends, all of us get classified by this system. We, we get valued and judged and evaluated. And I expect that as I've articulated this list Many of you might have heard the voice of the Spirit highlighting those points of pain in your own lives where someone has called you something 
where you have recognized your association with what the world sees as undesirable. Those areas where, where we're told we fall short and we're not good enough. But let me, but this is why, friends, this is why the gospel is able to do what the world cannot. And I want to want to illustrate this with a story. One day, Jesus was at the temple, and a crowd soon gathered, so that he sat down and he taught them. And as he was speaking, the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery, and they put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? And they were trying to trap him into saying something that they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer. And so he stood up again and he said, all right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. And then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. And then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, Where are your accusers? Did even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, Neither do I. Go and sin no more. When this woman was brought before Jesus, in the eyes of her people, she was an adulterer, she was a sinner, she was a disgrace, she was a criminal. She had been chewed up and spat out of her world, and her life was worth less. But Jesus doesn't condemn her. Jesus doesn't reject her. Instead, he redirects her and he commissions her. And friends, that is the beauty of the gospel. And it's the root of how the gospel addresses the pain that we carry as people. And it's the first point I want to make today. That the gospel rejects the grid of society. When you come to Jesus, when you choose to become a Christian, Jesus could not care less about your score on the world's value grid. Jesus doesn't care if you are the CEO of a multinational corporation with seven houses and five cars and three boats and one helicopter. Or if you're the service provider who keeps one of those houses clean. In Jesus' three years of ministry, he welcomed whoever would come to him and acknowledge him as Lord. Whether they were fishermen, children, tax collectors, prostitutes, Government officials, it didn't matter in the kingdom, it doesn't matter who you were, rather how you respond to Jesus. Excuse me. Paul wrote a letter to the Galatian church and he reminded them of this very thing because they were wrestling with this idea. Right, in Galatians chapter 3, Paul writes to them in, in verses 26 to 29. We're going to read it together. He says, For you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ. 
And now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. You are his heirs and you are heirs and uh, his heirs and God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. In Paul's letter to the Galatians, one of the major themes he addressed was the racial tension that existed in the church. And here at the end of chapter 3, we have the conclusion of that line of arguments. Paul says quite simply this. He says, guys, you need to recognize, you need to remember, you need to hold that none of that matters. It does not matter who you were before Jesus, whether you were Jewish, the indigenous people group, or a Gentile, a foreign people group. It doesn't matter whether you are a slave, economically and socially disempowered, or whether you're a free man, you're economically active and influential. It doesn't matter whether you're male or female in this patriarchal culture that we live in. None of these things, Paul says, affect your new value in Christ. All of you are God's children. All of you are equal heirs, entitled to an equal share in the promise. Paul says it's like putting on new clothes. It's like taking your old clothes off and putting a clean top on. You are clothed in a new identity. This is the first way the gospel begins to bring healing into our lives as Christians. It resets the playing field. It cancels all prior judgments and it throws them away. And it gives us a new identity. Guys, I, I knew this for quite some time, but I used to get it wrong. I used to get this wrong and I, I used to have this thought that existed in my mind that was, that was flawed. It was, it was an unhelpful thought, but it was this is how I thought. I thought to myself and I prayed to the Lord and I said, God, if you could just save Oprah... Like if you could just save her, just think of how many people she would be able to influence. I mean, the platform that she's got. And don't get me wrong, I don't watch Oprah. I don't really care about Oprah. But I know that she's got a big following. And I just thought, God, if you could save her, that would make like a huge difference. And it, it took me a while to recognize that that's actually a human way of thinking. That's myself getting caught up in the judgments and the value judgments of the world. Oprah is important because she's got influence. God doesn't care. God doesn't care. God can use the foolish things of this world and the weak things of this world. Because when we are weak, then he receives the most glory. And then he is glorified. And so Paul says, I glorify in my weakness. God doesn't care about our worldly value system. And friends, if I may make an observation as a person, as a pastor, it's been my observation that many of us get stuck in the world's evaluation of us. We get, we get lodged there and, and we take on board these, these tags that the world has put on us, these labels that now define who we are. And I want to say to us together today, those are self-imposed chains. They are self-imposed chains. Whether, whether you think they're good or bad, whether the world's telling you you're an incredible success or the world's telling you that you've shanked it horribly, both of those things put chains on us 
If we think we're successful and great, then we're probably full of pride. If we think we're terrible and useless, then we're, then we're self, full of self-pity. We haven't seen what God has put in us. And the gospel gives us the grace to cast those judgments aside because we have a God who loves us and who cares for us and who has brought us in irrespective. That's the foundation from which the gospel brings healing to us as individuals. And it's from this foundation that the gospel deals with the root of the problem. And this is, this is my second point today. The gospel deals with sin. It's very simple, right? But it's really important. When it comes to finding healing as an individual, one of the most important things that the gospel does is to deal with sin. Because behind many of the experiences from which we need healing lies sin. Either our sin or someone else's sin. And nothing else, nothing apart from the gospel can deal with sin. You can't take a pill for it. You can't see a counselor for it. If sin is the problem, the gospel is the solution and it's the only solution. I want to say this, friends. Sin and, and specifically our enemy, the devil, behind sin has cunningly created a trap through which the experience of sin can become an enduring and an ongoing source of pain and bondage in our lives. He has created a trap where the experience of sin becomes an enduring and ongoing source of pain and bondage in our lives. His design is to use our experience of sin to disempower us. Right? Because when we're not empowered to deal with our experience of sin, then we begin to languish in it. And the longer we languish in it, the more it begins to define us. The more it shapes our thought patterns and our actions and our identity and our conception of self. And he will typically do this in one of two ways. First, he will attempt to coax you into believing that your experience of sin is not your fault. And therefore, and this is important, there is nothing you can do about it. And the heart of this tactic is to cast us, to typecast us in the role as victim. Because being the victim allows us to believe that we are innocent. Which may or may not be true. There may be sin that we've experienced that we have not participated in at all. That's just been acted in upon us. And we have been innocent. And sometimes there is sin that we experience where we have been We've been a participant in and a contributor in that sin. Right. But when we become a victim, when we accept that idea that we're a victim and therefore there's nothing we can do. And that's the real problem. Right. Is we, we begin to see the pain that we're experiencing as someone else's fault. And because it's their fault there's nothing we can do about it. And because it's their fault, we have a right to be angry. And because it's their fault, we have a right to be bitter. And because it's their fault, my responsibility is to wait for them to come and to make it right. But all that does is to keep sin in the front and the center of our lives. It empowers that sin and it feeds our pain, 
Because it forces us to simply wait and to hope that someone else is going to take ownership of our pain and come and acknowledge it and do something about it. And until they do that, we are consigned to languish in it. And there's no way out because we're victims. And then the enemy gets in on the back of that. right? And, and he begins to additionally disempower us by shaming us for the, our experience of sin. Again, whether this was sin that was done against you or sin that you participated in, he wants to bring shame onto that. He will use our experience of sin to tempt us into believing less of ourselves. He will begin to influence our thoughts and implant ideas for us to accept that will disable us from taking any action. Thoughts like, if people know what I've done or what I've been through, they'd never accept me. I'm, I'm just not going to fit in anymore. I'm not going to be the Christian they, they thought I was. If I had acted differently, perhaps then this wouldn't have happened to me, but I, but I did and now I can't. I'm actually less valuable than other people because this happened to me. I'm not worthy of love. I'm not worthy of acceptance. I'm not good enough as a person. Those are tactics that the enemy uses to disempower us. Because when we are ashamed of our sin or our sinful experience, again, which you might have experienced from someone else, we become immobilized by guilt. And we become immobilized by silence and we become isolated and alone and we're stuck in our experience of sin and there is no way out. That's the design of the enemy. That's what he wants to do. But the gospel and Jesus himself came to destroy the work of the devil. 1 John 3.8 tells us that. The gospel deals with sin and its consequence in our lives. The gospel empowers us to deal with our sin and to leave it behind so that it can be a part of our story of redemption rather than our continual reality. Can I say that again? The gospel empowers us to deal with sin and to leave it behind so that it can become a part of our story of redemption rather than our continual reality. See, where the enemy would cast us into the role of the powerless victim, the gospel empowers us to recognize sin for what it is and to deal with it. Because in the gospel, we are all equal. And in the gospel, we are all unworthy and yet have been called worthy. And in the gospel, we are all sinners who have received grace from a Savior who has saved us. And we are all empowered to forgive just as we have been forgiven. There is no need, no excuse in the kingdom of God to remain a victim. Forgiveness is the means through which our experience of sin is dealt with. Forgiveness defeats the power of sin because it elevates us from being anchored in our past and it allows us to live in love toward one another. And friends, forgiveness doesn't diminish sin. It doesn't wash over it. It doesn't make lights of its terribleness. But it's choosing to place the consequences of sin into the hands of God. And in doing that, the power and the chain of sin 
is broken. Excuse me. No words could better illustrate this principle than the story of Brandt Jean and Amber Geiger. Which happened in October last year, and, and many of you may have seen this or have heard about this. It happened in America, but a lady called Amber Geiger mistakenly went into the wrong apartment one day. And in that apartment, she found someone who she thought was a burglar. She pulled out a gun and she shot him and he died. And in her trial, that man's brother, Brandt, expresses his forgiveness toward her. And I want you to, I want you to see this. This is a short two-minute clip. This story is worth watching because it shows so perfectly what happens when the forgiveness that we have received first from Jesus is freely given to others. Let's watch together. I can speak for myself. I, I forgive you. And I know if you go to God and ask Him, He will forgive you. And I don't think anyone could say it. Again, I'm speaking for myself, not even bad for my family. But I love you just like anyone else. And I'm not going to say I hope you rot and die just like my brother did. But I, see, I, I personally want the best for you. And I, I wasn't going to ever say this in front of my family or anyone, but I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best for you. Because I know that's, what, that's exactly what both of them would want you to do. And the best would be give your life to Christ. I'm not going to say anything else. I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing that both of them would want you to do. Again, I love you as a person. And I don't wish anything bad on you. I don't know if this is possible, but... Can, can I give her a hug, please? Please? Yes. <laughs> Brand Jean has experienced the loving grace of Jesus in his own life. And he was able to freely extend it to a woman who was broken by her own sin. Friends, that is the power of forgiveness. That is the power of the gospel. The gospel helps us find healing because it deals with the root of sin. It deals with sin. And sin is often the root of our pain. And it deals with that through the power of forgiveness. And it is a powerful thing. Thirdly, and finally, my final point, the gospel helps us to find healing by leading us to Jesus. 
more than anything else, we find healing in the gospel because the gospel leads us to Jesus himself. Listen to these words. These words that come from the King of Heaven, that come from the author of all creation, that came from the one who breathed life into the world. He says to you and he says to me, come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I'm humble and I'm gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. The end of his life, Jesus says, Go, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands that I have given you, and be sure of this. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. More than anything else, the gospel leads us to Jesus. To, to He himself is the one who walks alongside us. He himself is the one who is able to bear our burdens. He himself is the one who is able to hold all of our pain. He is the one who walks with us through the heartache. He is the one who runs out to us and loves us when we come back from the depths of our sin. He is the one who forgives us over and over and over again each time we sin against him. He is the one who empowers us to defeat the schemes of our enemy, who lifts us out of the chains of victimhood, worthlessness, bitterness, and anger. Friends, as Christians, we have the incredible privilege of being able to come to the King of Heaven, day after day, moment after moment, to a God who is always willing and able to help us process our pain and to learn to walk in the freedom that He's offered us. And sometimes this is a journey that takes some time. But it's a journey that Jesus walks with us. It's a journey of victory. It's a journey of hope and of life. And it's one that we walk together. And as we, like Branchine, experience the healing of Jesus in our own lives, then we get to be ministers of that healing to our nation. From one person to another as the gospel extends. So we're about to close. I'm going to pray for us. I want to remind you that we've got a Zoom room that's going to be available for ministry if you want to join us after this morning's time from 10 to 10.30. But this is where we've gone. We recognize that the gospel is the great equalizer, that all of us carry the same value before God and that he judges us all and welcomes us all into his family. That the gospel is the thing that empowers us to deal with the sin that lies behind much of our pain. And we saw the power of forgiveness to break the bonds and the shackles of sin and pain that we carry. And finally, that we get to live this journey of healing with the help and the presence of King Jesus himself, day by day, moment by moment, because he is here with us. So let's close together in prayer. And please join us for some ministry afterwards if you'd like. Father, I thank you that you are such a good and wonderful God. I thank you, Lord, that you know what it is to endure heartache and trial and pain. 
that you lost your earthly father, that you lost close friends, that you suffered rejection at the hands of friends and enemies alike. And God, you did it all without falling into sin. I thank you, Jesus, that you are with us. And even as we struggle in this world, and you told us, God, that we will have trouble, that we will have hardship. I thank you, God, that you are with us every step of the way. I thank you, God, that you break down the barriers that society puts up that keep us apart. I thank you, God, that you break down those things that entrench our pain and our heartache. I thank you, God, that in the gospel and the power of your grace that you have lavished on us, that we are able to break free of our hurts and the pain that we've experienced. And Lord, I want to pray. I want to pray today for anyone who is with us and who is listening to this message. Lord, I want to pray that where there is hurt that has been carried for a long time, where there's hurt that's even begun to fester. Lord Jesus, I want to pray that by the Spirit now you would speak life into that place. That you would release peace into their heart. That you would draw them into the grace that exists in the gospel. That you would show them God and minister to them the love of a Father who loves them so deeply and intimately and significantly. And God, that we would be a people that have been healed by our gracious King, so that we could be a people who minister that healing into the world around us. Come and do it in us by your Spirit, we ask and pray in your wonderful name, King Jesus. Amen. Amen. Friends, thank you so much for being with us today. May God bless you and carry you into the week you have ahead.